This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Money. Burns a hole in my pocket. All right, so $30 billion in your pocket. What to do, what to do. That's certainly been the dilemma for America's largest companies in the first quarter. So what did they do with all that extra money thanks to the corporate tax cut? Matt Townsend has been working on that really cool story. He's our global business reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 1130 studio here with Jason Kelly and myself. Good to have you here. Thank you. So, okay, we've all been wondering... Um, that due to the corporate tax cut, that meant more money in the pockets of a lot of American corporations. You did some analysis. What did you find out about what they did? Uh, we found out that if you look at the first quarter data for the S&P 500 on their results, you know, the big takeaway is they have more money, they're spending more money, but they're spending in similar ways. And what that means is if you think about a pie, for example, the pie is getting bigger. That's what the $30 billion is. So they basically got a $30 billion windfall from the lower tax rate. So they have more money, but they're spending in some similar proportions. That means the amount of money they're spending on buybacks and dividends is basically the same from, from, from a ratio perspective as they're spending on um, CapEx and some other aspects. The percentages didn't change. The percentages didn't change. So you know, the big selling point on the, on the tax cut on the corporate side for, from Republicans and President Trump was that this was going to change corporate behavior in some way, that they would start investing more in the United States and making America great again and all that stuff. But so far, now granted, this is early. This is only one quarter. Mm -hmm. um, we don't see much change in corporate behavior, even though there's a lot of headlines out there from other news outlets saying buybacks are surging and CapEx is up. They are up, but everything's up. So they're basically spending more on everything, and there hasn't been a shift in corporate behavior in the big sort of macro level of the S&P 500. And, and one of the ways that this really grabbed a lot of press early on, as you know, Matt, was with these bonuses exactly, that the yeah. Walmarts and others uh, were paying out. And, and that went pretty wide, and people got a lot of positive publicity about it. But owing to the fact that these are one-time things, there's not really that lasting effect that, that you might see. And so we certainly haven't seen it come through wages and, and whatnot. Yeah, wage gains in the first quarter were roughly, they were a little bit above what they've been for the average for the recovery. Um, you know, when you, when you look at the wages and, and um, sort of other perks, sort of wages and compensation or wages and benefits, they rose, but rose a little bit more than the previous quarter and the fourth quarter. Um, so not a lot of movement there. And again, I mean, this is going to take a long time of analysis to actually figure out what happened. There'll be tons of you know academic papers written about it. Even the Chamber of Commerce, which is sort of the big lobbying arm of corporate America, said recently that who knows if we'll ever be, ever be able to really quantify hmm. exactly if these tax cuts worked. Is it <laughs> there's a lot of variables. Is it too early though to do the first quarter, Matt? Because I feel like the tax it, it, cut. You know, people were still trying to figure out what it meant to some extent, although it seems like it's pretty clear in terms of the corporate tax cut. But I mean, will it take maybe a couple of quarters to see how it might filter out differently? Sure. From the corporate side, definitely. Yeah. yeah. It, it's going to take a long time. But, you know, 
the, us being in the news business, we're trying to give readers. <laughs> we had to give Matt Townsend something to <laughs> yeah, do. Something to write about. <laughs> something to, to digest about what's happening. Um, so it, it's not really a surprise. There hasn't been a major shift in behavior. Now, certain sectors might show different, you know, might show substantial changes one way or the other. That's another thing we're looking at. But if you look at overall the S&P 500, which is the, are the biggest public companies, not, not really a change at all. And, you know, it's been interesting to see how this plays out for the midterm elections. Obviously, Republicans running on the tax cuts and Democrats criticizing them as giveaways to the rich and whatnot. Matt, you, you spend a lot of your time looking at retail and consumer behavior. It, what do you make of how the consumer is feeling right now with the tax cuts playing through, but also sort of in this general economy. I know you've looked at Nike a lot lately yeah. for other reasons, sure, but yeah. you, you look at a lot of these sort of bellwether companies, it feels like. You know, consumer sentiment is sky high. Uh, is that relatable to the tax cuts? I mean, maybe a little bit. I don't, you know, it's hard to say. But as far as, you know, most retailers are, are having had pretty solid first quarters. Um, you know, the, the thing that we heard over and over again working on this story is that you know, the tax cuts came in the economic cycle when companies don't really need money because right. it's basically seen as the top of the cycle. They've done their investing to build capacity for growth. Um, but again, you know, retail, I cover that uh, industry pretty closely. They were an industry that needed a lot of money or they need a lot of money to invest in their, their operations to sort of compete with the Amazons of the world. So it's interesting to see what they actually did with the money. Um, they do with the money this year because that is one industry that said they needed it. That's a great point. Like I do wonder if you break it down by industries, do you see kind of different trends? There are different trends and it's something yeah. we're looking at further. Uh, you know, in different industries have different needs. I mean companies, you know, just one, one that stood out was Caterpillar basically. They were asked a lot about what are you going to do with your cash? What are you going to do with your cash? Because they basically said we have the capacity we need. We're not going to be building any more plants or investing in – growing our CapEx. Maybe we'll buy some other companies. But at this point, you know, they don't have a lot to invest in. What's interesting, though, too, and I think about this because we're trying to figure out what happens next in this cycle since sure. it's been such a protracted one. But if companies aren't necessarily amping up the cap capital expenditures at this point, yeah. you know, where they've got extra money on hand, money's been so cheap, it makes me wonder whether, you know, the cycle's kind of coming to an end here in terms of growth. Yeah, I think for certain, for, for certain industries, already, they're already seeing that. But yeah. it, it is a question. And, you know, that was, again, going back to the sort of the critique of this tax cut to happen at this point in the cycle. Yeah. You know, again, it's a, it's a multi-year tax cut. So it's not just this, this year. But, um, yeah, so it's, it'll be really interesting. But, you know, if you, if you read one thing about the tax cut, read our story, and it basically says nothing's really changing. <laughs> 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 Nothing to see what, here. Move along. Despite what you might be reading in other places. Of course, the question becomes, what are the tariffs going to be on those tons of steel? To get the answer to that, we turn to Phil Gibbs. He's Metals Equity Research Analyst at KeyBank Capital Markets. He's based in Cleveland, but he's in Boston today uh, for a conference. Phil, good to be with you. Hey, good to be with you, uh, Jason and, and Carol. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So trade wars, if we can call it that. What's happening? How is that playing through uh, to the steel industry specifically at this moment? Yeah, I mean, to set the tone, it's really been an interesting and unusual year for the steel industry. But I think the precarious nature of the space is really what makes it exciting. 
I'd say right now, U.S. industry fundamentals are as good as they've been in a really long time. Demand is generally favorable. We see positive momentum in construction, energy, and industrial markets. But though to your question, I think the real story here has been the carbon steel pricing hyperinflation that we've seen since the fall. Prices are up, call it 30 to 50 percent since the fall 17 lows. And we think, think a serious portion of that move has been influenced by the administration's Section 232 flex, flexible steel tariffs, which were levied about two months ago. Well, I do, you know, it's funny. I was like, I couldn't remember where we were on the steel tariffs because I feel like so much stuff has gone back and forth uh, on all trade issues um, with the administration. But I believe it's, is it June 1st that we get some some final details when it comes to the imposition on those steel, on steel tariffs? Yeah. So as of as of right now, uh, the, the groundwork has been laid for most all of our trading partners to have 25% tariffs or taxes on steel, but you've had some exemptions so far. Right. I would say there have been temporary exemptions that we're looking for on NAFTA and the EU, mm-hmm. uh, which have been extended until June 1st as we work through broader uh, broader trade issues with them. And I think right now, trade pundits and, and folks that follow the steel industry right now are, are waiting on pins and needles to see if this Friday – uh, whether or not the, the the president extends the temporary tariffs that he's provided to those to those countries, um, and so I think that's where where folks head are at. I think right now, given the fact that none of the deadlines that the administration has really imposed upon itself have been met, so I wouldn't be surprised if if the administration uh, pushed pushed some of this to the right a little bit further. And Phil, when when you talk about pins and needles. What does that mean in the context of your day-to-day business? How much of this back and forth, as Carol was describing, how does that play through to making decisions or or not? Well, I mean, I, I think I think you need to put things into into context, and then what where what the steel consumers see right now, and then what how that compares to the rest of the world. I think if you're a steel producer. Your second quarter and third quarter earnings should be exceptional uh, due to the fact that pricing has really raced out well above the rest of the world. But I think investors right now haven't been treating the sector as if the current conditions are sustainable, and I think we we understand why. I think first off, Jason, if if the flexible tariffs are in any way similar to Bush's 201 in 2002, then they may be relaxed or abandoned due to geopolitical complexity. And I I would say the geopolitical complexity is what we hear over and over again, uh, you know, in these meetings that we're having. I think secondly, U.S. steel consumers now find themselves at a grave disadvantage versus their global peers. Uh, Sheet pricing, which people look at hot rolled pricing as the bellwether, is about 250 to 300 dollars a ton above comparable normalized uh, global benchmarks. And I think something, if you're in the eyes of a U.S. steel buyer, likely feels like a hostage crisis right now and, and may yield some demand destruction. And I think another thing to watch right now, too, Jason, is the fact that a couple leading indicators, uh, like the U.S. dollar, which is strengthened and, and oil prices are beginning to level out, you know, could temper demand momentum a little bit as we move through the year. So I think I think we're just cautioning people that things are really good right now, but using these tariffs as a tool uh, for the administration to achieve broader trade objectives with our partners is something that we're keeping in mind um, as, as we move through the summer here. So current conditions, we do not 
expect to persist as we look out six to 12 months. Hey, Phil, just got about 40 seconds left here. You're overweight on Reliance Steel. You're also overweight on Steel Dynamics. So that's the play for you right now. And both of these have, have moved up, you know, considerably this year, just quickly. Yeah, I mean, I, I think right now, as we've said, Earnings are going to be great near term, but we balance that view with eventual normalization of trade policy and cyclical risks. And right now we're telling investors to be defensively and selectively positioned, so we prefer names with uh, organic growth catalysts, strong free cash flow, and optionality to emanate infrastructure. And I think infrastructure will become a bigger point yeah. here after the midterm elections. And I think given that, I would be looking at steel dynamics, reliance, or even commercial metals as, uh, as defensive plays in the sector as we look into the second half. Hey, Phil, good to check in with you once again. Phil Gibbs, he's Metals Equity Research Analyst at KeyBank Capital Markets. They're based in Cleveland. Phil in Boston today, though, for the uh, KeyBank Annual Industrial and Basic Materials Conference. Uh, just by the way, he mentioned uh, Reliance Steel. That stock's up about 10% this year, and Steel Dynamics is up 16%. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. Interrupt, BB King. I'm just saying. I just can't do it. All right, everybody. Um, we got a fun segment that we want to talk a little bit about because, first of all, let me just set the scene. The VIX is up more than 36% this year as stocks have bounced around back to a more so-called normal level of volatility. Let's talk about that with someone who has to put money to work for the University of Cincinnati Endowment. Carl Shear back with us, Chief Investment Officer at the University of Cincinnati, on the phone from that city, along with our own Janet Lauren, Endowments Reporter of Bloomberg News. She's in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York City. Hey, Carl, great to have you here with Janet and Jason Kelly and myself. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, this kind of more normal level of volatility. What has that meant for you guys or for you specifically uh, in terms of managing uh, the University of Cincinnati Endowment? Thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, the, the level of volatility that we're currently at, as you mentioned, is more normal. I mean, the last year, I think we had 14 or 15 straight months, uh, straight up months in uh, global, uh, especially U.S. stock markets. That's really unusual. That very, very rarely happens. And indeed, last year was about as good about as good conditions you'll ever have for, for stock markets. So the fact that anything has changed, and we've had a number of different changes, some of which you've been talking about uh, in just in the last couple segments, uh, you know, trade wars in, in uh, Italy and so forth, those are bound to cause a different level of, uh, of volatility and, and worse conditions than we've had. But what's really interesting, I think, is that the, the reaction of markets has been radically different in just the last few months than it was in the prior about 18 months. You could sort of watch markets' level of risk sensitivity kind of f gradually fall after uh, mid-August uh, of 2015 all the way up to early uh, February of 2016. Markets were incredibly sensitive. Just about anything made markets freak out. But then we had Brexit, and it was about a three-day recovery, and then uh, Trump's victory in the U.S. was about a two-hour recovery overnight. And then Matteo Renzi, you might recall his uh, uh, that campaign in late 2016, there was no reaction at all. And so some of the things we've seen, the, 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 Italy, uh, the Italy situation we have now, is actually a two-and-whatever-year-old situation. But for some reason, markets have, uh, have suddenly gone from placid and unflappable to very excitable. So we've got a month left for the fiscal year. Last year, you returned about 13.5%. Uh, what's your outlook for the, for the end of the, of the fiscal year? 
It looks like this year, I would suspect, will be somewhere in the range of about 10% gains for the year. So very Pretty good, good? news. Yeah, really nice. We'll, we'll obviously be able to pay our bills very successfully and still uh, uh, bank some for future years. Um, and that came from a number of different places. Actually, this year, we had uh, you know great U.S. stocks, good international. But one of our one of our really nice themes is a, a significant overweight to emerging markets, which were very productive for us this year. And so, Carl, do you stick with emerging markets at this point? How is that looking as as we go forward? Uh, well, we uh, we're going to stay with an overweight to emerging markets. We have uh, been rebalancing aggressively in a number of our different themes, including emerging markets. So while we've been booking gains, we've been taking those gains and putting them into other parts of our portfolio that have not done quite as well. Uh, but we're definitely sticking with an overweight. The, Even though, the valuations are the most compelling okay. uh, component of that. Because as you know, they've come down a bunch, Carl, from earlier this year. If you go back to like January, I'm just looking at the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. They're down about 13%. You still see because it's they're cheap, right? Definitely. And the big risk in emerging markets is capital flows. They don't have domestic investor bases that can support their own markets. Mm-hmm. So foreign investors have to, uh, have to drive their, their market returns. So you see the flows come in and out, and it can cause really you know, dramatic swings in valuations in, in emerging market companies especially. Um, but, but that's just a flow issue. We think that the fundamentals, the population dynamics, and the valuations in those countries are very compelling for the long term. And that's our job. Any other changes in your rebalancing? We haven't made many changes in rebalancing. We reduced uh, our overweight to the U.S. by a smidge, but not very much. And we have added some exposure to um, public real assets, specifically in MLPs, Master Limited Partnerships, which we focus on midstream assets in energy space, which is uh, you know pipes and tanks and compressors to move ener- hydrocarbons around the country. And Carl, how are you feeling about alternatives at this point? Are you going more heavier or lighter uh, as you think about hedge funds, private equity, private real estate side? Great question. We we uh, have uh, modest, allowed our hedge funds to come down modestly. We continue to think that they're going to be a great place to have money when the cycle shifts. But returns between now and then are going to be pretty modest, maybe mid-single digits. When the cycle shifts, often what you see is that uh, there are a lot of abandoned assets. And uh, because it's been such a long cycle, our hedge funds have uh, kind of gone through the life cycle of some of the abandoned assets from the last uh, market change, the last credit cycle, and kind of need to replenish the coffers. And we're looking forward to uh, watching them have a chance to do that. In private equity world, the, the dominant factor continues to be manager selection. Right. So while valuations are way up and there's tremendous competitiveness, especially in the upper uh, sizes of companies, we still think that manager selection is going to dominate. And we've focused on the lower ends of the markets. We think that if you buy smaller companies and stabilize them, institutionalize them, and uh, get them ready for sale, that you can sell into that more competitive part of the market and hopefully experience a a value arbitrage, a valuation arbitrage. In your discussion with hedge fund managers, are they interested in reducing fees or changing terms? Uh, we've kind of relentlessly pushed on them to reduce fees, and what we I think we've seen is that they are uh, they're willing to consider it, often with uh, it, it, in a trade-off for slightly less liquidity. So they may go from every six months to every year liquidity, that kind of thing. Uh, but we continue to to uh, push hard on that and have uh, have gotten a good reception from our hedge funds. Is that a good trade? Uh, more a, more of a lockup. 
Um, you know, one of the keys to um, success in, in investing broadly is matching assets and liabilities. To the extent we're, you know, on the side of moving in that in the, in the right direction, there, what we're doing is protecting ourselves from other LPs who might make mistakes during a, a panic. And so, I think it's a good trade because it actually aligns, you know, all LPs with each other and with the GP better, and you get better fees. And how about on the private equity side, Carl? Are you winning some fee concessions there as well? Heck no. <laughs> Private equity is uh, is is uh, in a very warm part of the cycle. Let's say uh, uh, warm part of the cycle. I'm going to quote you on that. That's excellent. Cycle. Yeah, it's very sunny and bright in private equity world these days. And so many managers are not only you know maintaining fees, some are actually raising fees, and many are doing things like selling pieces of the firm to asset managers. Many funds are creating new fund series, so they may have an equity series, and they're starting a, a credit strategy or a they have a, a large fund series, and they're starting a smaller fund series. We've seen um, private equity manage, managers mostly put both feet on the gas pedal and push hard. I feel like there's a great Bloomberg story there about <laughs> in the warm part of the cycle when it comes to uh, private equity guys. Carl Shear, so nice to have you back with us, Chief Investment Officer at the University of Cincinnati, on the phone from Cincinnati, and of course our own Janet Lauren, endowments reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. That's pretty cool. Right? Like, Very good. Like a little idea of, and he's doing pretty well. well I'm still thinking about those 10% returns for next year. <laughs> Hopefully there's not another black swan in the last month. He certainly sounded um, you sunny, know, pretty level. Yeah, sunny. Warm upbeat. part of the cycle. <laughs> All right, everybody. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets. I'm Carol Master along with Jason Kelly, and this is Bloomberg Radio. If you want to comb your cat, there's an app for that. If you have to fix a flat, there's an app for that. There is indeed an app for everything these days, even apparently to detect activist investors. Now, that is a Bloomberg spin on a story if I've ever heard one. <laughs> to bring us more, Shanali Basik, she looks after all things investment banking, boutiques, Morgan Stanley, all of it for us. Uh, bring us this story, the headline of which is Besieged by Activist Investors, Goldman Unveils an App for That. Shanali, welcome. Thanks, Jason. So tell us what's going on here. We are at an age of heightened activism, to say the least, and we'll get to that in a minute. But what is this app? So you have people all across Wall Street at all the major investment banks building up activism defense teams. And so what Goldman did was said, hey, can we take a data-driven approach to this? Can we figure out a way to tell you how vulnerable you are to an activist? Apparently, yes, they can. And how do we protect you from that? And are there ways we can do it faster? So they aggregated data over years from publicly available information. They determined which factors make you more likely to an activist than other factors. And then they made a proprietary score. And so as of Friday, the score always changes. As of Friday, if you were at a 76% or lower, you were three times more likely to be targeted by an activist than if you were above. That's pretty wild. So I'm assuming they're looking at things like earnings, share price, I don't know, uh, what else? Do we have any idea of like what's going into this equation? We absolutely do. So there are some very typical things yeah. like total return, but there are things you wouldn't expect. So one of the top factors of what determines the score, and everything is weighted differently and back-tested over a number of years, is the dispersion of analyst rankings. So if you have a number oh, of analysts and that say that you have a different price target, every analyst has their own thought of what your price should be, it says that you're not communicating your worth properly to the market. Wow. And so that's actually a very big determinant of whether an activist can come into your stock. 
So let's talk about the whole business of activism defense. I mean, this is a service that is provided to companies, right, who are worried about a Carl Icahn, a Paul Singer, a Bill Ackman sort of sweeping in, buying up some shares and forcing them to do a bunch of stuff that they may not want to do. This is becoming a really big money business on Wall Street because on one hand, you have – Carl Icahn, the big names that you have always thought of. And then now there are more activists slowly coming into the mix. Things like Neuberger Berman, for example, that used to never be an activist. And now all of a sudden they're sending letters to companies and telling them that they need to make changes to make their returns better for their shareholders. And so, yeah, every every major Wall Street investment bank is looking at their client base and saying you should prepare for for this advent and make sure that you're treating your shareholders better and well, preparing. For put, this. put some perspective mm-hmm. on it. I mean, how active have the activist investors been and who's been among the most active? Absolutely. So it's been a record year last year. And I mean, there are very clear outliers. So Elliot, for example, was by and large the biggest fund to put money behind activism campaigns. They put $13.3 billion alone in the market value of activist positions. The second largest was Pershing Square um, at, at Bill Ackman's oh. fund. At so four- this is Paul Singer, Elliott mm-hmm. Management, and Bill Ackman, Pershing Square. At $4.2 billion. So that's the discussion. Wow. $3.3 to $4.2 billion. I mean, one of the things that I find so fascinating about this, and Carol, you and I were talking about this on the Business Week show yeah. uh, just this week, airing this weekend on Bloomberg Television and <laughs> Bloomberg Radio, this whole saga that unfolded at Xerox involving you know, an acquisition or potential acquisition by Fujifilm, Intercar, yeah. Carl Icahn. He's been doing this for decades. Right. He's still hanging around. But, Shanali, your point about this new breed coming in, they're armed with technology too, presumably. So in some ways, they're sort of fighting tech with tech, Wall Street is here. I think the worry is, is when you look at who your shareholders are, and everyone treats this differently. But, for example, so the Elliott data came from Lazard. Lazard takes a stance that if you look at your shareholder base – Half of it now is people you can't talk to. They're massive index funds that Mm -hmm. really need to think about this and now have dedicated teams that decide whether they're going to side with the activists or not. That's such an interesting point. Yeah. They're so big and powerful that, you know, you need to worry about if they're going to vote against you. So you need to make sure they're happy. And now what Goldman is doing is saying, okay, well, we're going to provide you an app to show you how you gauge in each of these funds. So if you're in a Vanguard fund, any particular Vanguard fund, then you can look at how you compare on 22 different metrics to every other firm in that fund. What's what's in it for Goldman? And I feel like Goldman is more broadly going into this data space and providing kind of tools um, for companies and, and the financial community at large. We're seeing this across the street in general, across yeah. every business line, a, a wake-up call that if they don't start to adapt technology, then they may lose. And so Goldman is saying, okay, let's get ahead of it. You know, we're going to provide our, our information and our technology more broadly. We have this proprietary score. We believe our data is better than yours. And we're going to roll it out and offer it to clients and say that this is our competitive advantage. We're not replacing our bankers. We're just helping our data inform our bankers. We're replacing some people (laughs) as you automate stuff. I love talking Wall Street. Thank you, (laughs) Shanali. Shanali Bosick. She's investment banking reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Check her out on Twitter at Shanali Bosick. All right, you are listening to Bloomberg Markets. Carol Master, Jason Kelly on Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? 
Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, time for the drive to the close. Steve Kroll back with us, managing director at Mona's Crespi Hart & Company, here with what went down at the latest Titans dinner in our New York studio. So just remind everybody, I know I always make you do this or ask you to do this, but the Titans dinner is kind of a cool thing that you do, and you've been doing it for eight, nine years? Eight, nine years. Uh, we have 20 of the, well, we hope to be the best or are the best financiers on Wall Street, and we get together. We used to do it at Le Cirque, and now we're around the corner at uh, Vasquez, and it's a 100 East 63rd, and they do a good job. Basically, we go around the room and do That was a some... shameless plug, but I'm going to let you get away with it because <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I like you. <laughs> we do a uh, macro comments, and we also do uh, uh, stock ideas. And, uh, you know, most people that attend have been in the business for 30 or 40 years, so the ideas are pretty pretty easy to understand. And uh, the uh, the interesting comments, two gentlemen, John Levin, uh, famous John Levin, and Tony Lobier were the Two that were very cautious, but the the main theme that that came out was that our rates uh, here in the United States are still relatively very high. Obviously, they're going to be increased in June, so that will make them even higher. And then you look at the uh, some of the other countries, and it's a little amazing to see France at 0.69, uh, Germany at 0.36, Italy at 2.95, which is close to our 10-year, and they have a right. problem. So <laughs> our rates are higher than Italy. I can't figure that. No one can figure that out. Spain is 1.56, and UK is 1.25. So if we go along where we increase them in June, it's going to attract more and more money to our bond market and our stock market because it's really the only uh, only really good place right now that to, to, to put the money, in our opinion. Um, so the, needless to say, like the this is a group – they've seen some things, <laughs> to say the least, right? Right. And so at, a, at this most recent dinner, did they walk in – collectively sort of with a spring in their step? Are they feeling good about this market? Are they feeling like maybe we're coming toward the end of a good time? Like generally, what's the mood here? I think the mood was a feel okay, because if you remember, we started the year off better and they've given back some performance. Mm -hmm. We were just coming that night into a period where the oil stocks were under significant pressure uh, short term. So I think that the average uh, person was down a percent or up two percent, so nothing, nothing really exciting. Um, they all have a lot of stocks that they like, uh, and, and also preface that this is a really a mostly institution, so it's mostly long, long only right. rather than hedge funds. Mm-hmm. But I think that they are somewhat worried more about the macro outside the country and what happens if we raise rates and our economy, which is starting to moderate some, as you saw the economic numbers today. What then happens if we have a little sniffle? What happens to the emerging markets? Um, and regardless of what you want to call it, uh, the tariffs and, and what have you is protectionism. And that's usually leads to a slower economic growth. I love Wilbur Ross and I know he's doing a great job. But protectionism <laughs> does lead, lead to a slower – somebody's going to have a slower growth. We've got uh, Titans in the in in the administration these absolutely. days. Absolutely, yeah, Wilbur's been to a, a Titans dinner many a times, and he's and he's great. Were there but, any kind of investment trends like you, where you found a few folks kind of thinking the same idea? Uh, surprisingly, 
there were not many, but okay. there's a couple stood out. Uh, some people, which I believe, uh, Bill Miller the third uh, senior, uh, still loves housing, and he was claiming mm-hmm. that interest rates are are going up and not going up as much as people think, which is probably being played out the last couple of right. days. Right. Uh, Lenar is one of the names he likes. Lenar it's, got, was, it's gotten beaten up this year. It's it, down it did 17%. Get beaten up and, uh, but he was, you know, he's yeah. a long-term player. He was up 200% last year, so he's he's a lot better than I am. So the housing uh, names were predominantly on there. Uh, Chris Davis had a couple of uh, – uh, he had the uh, uh, two two uh, what I call financial ones, COF mm-hmm. and then Wells Fargo. We, we kidded him a little bit about Wells Fargo and some of their internal problems because his father was a – Famous, famous. Uh, Chris's father was a famous, famous banker, uh, and made his money in, in financial stocks. Was that some of his thinking that Wells Fargo was kicked around a little bit? Well, and... I think he he's given them as as uh, other people have a free pass. And one of the things, and he and I had a, a joust about it, saying that he said, "Well." Uh, J.P. Morgan had the London Whale. I said, well, J.P. Morgan, London Whale is one or two people. It looks like the Wells Fargo was substantially more than 10 people. And, right. uh, but it's, 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 it, will, it will come out of the, uh, the, the situation. And then, um, then it became a lot of media names, which I was surprised. But that was probably because last week media was in the, in the thing. Right. So they yes. tend to come in and talk about um, what's going on. I think they think longer-term oil is going to do okay. Rates are going up, but going up slower. So, Earnings are okay. Remind me, though, Steve, are these recent buys by these guys what or they adding are, to positions? Uh, we can't, they, they're not allowed to say something that they're buying now. So they okay. have bought these names. And, um, you know, they just and they can sell them whenever they want or reduce them whenever they want. But these are names that they like uh, and are in their portfolio already. By compliance, we can't have them if they're if they're talking about buying them. Right. Um, and you know Verizon, which was two names that came up because they're so far ahead of everybody else on yeah. the, on the G five, which I thought was interesting because it's a higher yield and 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 so far ahead of AT and T. The airlines came have come up in the past, um, but uh, Joe Warner had indicated on the Delta, which had a very very good quarter and actually yeah. raised guidance. And if you get crude moderating uh, a little bit more. It could be a big, big stock uh, going forward. It looks like it's breaking out. Right. And, you know, you mentioned Bill Miller the third, the senior. In, in this case, Bill Miller the fourth, the right. son, also there. Well, he, uh, Bill Miller, his son, is very, very talented. Um, he has an uh, uh, income fund. It's listed here, value partners, but it's, it's Bill Miller income uh, uh, fund. And he buys generally higher yielding securities. Oxif was one of them. Oxif was a surprising addition there. He does down and out, but he's also listed in the income funds year to date number one. Wow! So there's a father and a son that are moving quite well together, and they're they're very smart. They think differently, but they're very very smart. Nobody's saying that we've this market cycle over. No, um, I, th- I think that um, the only thing is that certain groups. You know, are, are can be sold or whatever. No, I don't. I didn't get a sense of that. Yeah. Uh, we're in the ninth inning. I think we, they're probably more like we're in the seventh inning, and also recognizing that if if money has some problems in Venezuela or Argentina or Greece or any of those other countries that Brazil or what have you, it's going to come here. It just you, you know. Maybe when in we, doubt. It, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> when in doubt, and the fact that also the bond people yeah. when in doubt. Our rates are the highest. So what are you going to do? You're going to put your money in the same equivalent in Italy on a 10-year. Uh, and With a lot more risk. At, or the banks. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. So that's that was the 
the general theme. Okay, but nothing great. What'd you have for dessert? Uh, today? Oh, you no. mean that? <laughs> <laughs> no, no dessert. Again, I'm on a diet. Uh, okay, okay. Just check it. Um, nice to see you. Again. Thank you. Thank you. Steve Kroll. He's Managing Director at Mona's Crispy Heart & Company in our Bloomberg 1130 studio, breaking down the latest Titans dinner. All right, you are listening to Bloomberg Markets. Carol Master, Jason Kelly. We've got the closing bell in just a moment right here on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. 